Luke 22, I'm going to begin reading here at verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They, the disciples, they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, look, look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in agony. He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those who were around saw around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers, of the temple and elders who had come up against him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Amen. Now, last week we were considering the betrayal of our Savior by Judas um, the greatness of the kingdom being among those who serve. And then also we see that we were called to perseverance. You'll remember that Peter, boys and girls, you remember Peter thought he was pretty strong, didn't he? And he thought, I'll never leave you, Lord. Even if all the rest of these guys, all these other jokers leave you, I'm going to be there. And Jesus soberly had to prophesy to Peter that, Peter, you're going to deny me tonight. The, 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 the crow will, will sound three times. And by that time, you'll have denied me three times. 
And Peter, though, still pretty, I think, sure of himself, was really certain that that was going to happen. And you remember how we laughed it last week when uh, I told you that in churches in Europe, and I found one and put it on our page on Facebook up in New England, had a rooster on the steeple as a reminder to people uh, not to be like Peter. And uh, it was interesting that this week I was preaching at the Florence Hand Home and one of the elderly women told me that she knows of a church out here on the Troop Merriweather County line that has a rooster on the steeple. She said, as you go out towards Greenville, look to the right. A church right near the line there has a rooster on the steeple. I didn't know that. So next time I, I, I get to go see the Dalkies, I think later uh, Thursday night. So as I'm heading out there, I'm going to look for that. That steeple and take a picture of it. But anyway, so uh, now we come to Luke's next few scenes. And, and I'm entitling these scenes as following. It's a little bit of alliteration here. Each scene has its own alliterative uh, phrase. The first one is the dark days that are coming. Uh, verse 35 to 38, Jesus here now tells his disciples about the coming dark days Secondly, we see then Jesus praying to prepare in verses 39 to 46. He's praying about the trials that are awaiting him, his arrest, his trial, his his crucifixion. And he is praying. Secondly, verse 39 to 46. And then thirdly, Luke then tells us about the arrest and the attack on Jesus, the arrest and the attack on Jesus. Verse 47 to 53. So those are our three points here uh, this morning. So look at your Bible again at verse 35 with me as we look at this next section of the dark days that Jesus now is warning his disciples in verse 35. And he Jesus said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? Now, what is he referring to there? He's referring to the time that he sent the disciples out two by two to do work of evangelism among all the towns of Israel. And you'll remember that Jesus specifically instructed them not to make a lot of provision for themselves. They were to learn to trust God for the provision of those that bring the good news. So they weren't supposed to take a money belt. Uh, They weren't supposed to take an extra tunic with them. They weren't supposed to take uh, a lot of food with them. They were to rely on the hospitality of those that they preached the gospel to. But now, very interestingly, Jesus tells them to do the exact opposite. Notice what the text again says. Well, he asked them, did you lack anything? And they say, no, God, God was faithful. God provided for them all. Nobody missed a meal uh, on their missionary journey. And then he says in verse 36, he, Jesus said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, what I take by this is that Jesus now is really warning his disciples that dark days, days of persecution are coming upon them. And that whereas formally they were able to freely go out and rely upon the Lord and the hospitality of others, to provide for their material needs. Now something is changing. And Jesus is saying they need to make provisions 
And I think the reason that Christ is telling them this is because now they are going to, in a sense, be on the run. They're going to be hiding. Jesus is going to be arrested. And that with this, in their eyes, victory, that is in the eyes of the, the Sanhedrin, now that they have arrested the principal leader of this group, that they will try to go after the others. They will try to find the others and, and deal with them. Remember that they're worried about them, particularly after the death of Jesus, because they think that they're going to come and steal the body of Jesus. And they're going to use that as, a, as an excuse. So <coughs> here that they if whereas formerly they were specifically committed not to take provisions for themselves. Now they're told to do so. If you've got a money belt to bring it. If you need extra clothing, take a bag with you. And even here, you'll note that Jesus tells him a defensive weapon is permitted as well. You notice there that he says, um, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. That's an extraordinary statement, considering, uh, you know, formerly they, they were never to do that. But now he's saying I think he's not telling them as a church that they are to take up the sword. I mean, in the sense that we see that in the third point, when we see it's Peter, he's not named by Luke, but other gospel writers tell us who it is. When Peter takes the sword and lops off the high priest's slave's ear, Malchus's ear is cut off. And and the I and so you say, well, why does Jesus tell them here to if necessary, you know, sell something that they have in order to obtain a sword. But then later he tells Peter not to use the sword at the arrest. And I think you have to understand those two things together. And that what the Lord is saying here is that the sword was to be used for self-defense, that they were going to be on the run and they needed protection, possibly from robbers, marauders and others as they they go into hiding. It's to be a defensive weapon. But it was not to be understood that the church itself as a church was to take up arms so as to prevent Christ from going to the cross. Does that make sense? And so I think we have to take these two things together to properly understand what's going on here, to properly, properly exegete this task. I, I would say the same applies today. Uh, people, some people uh, may think that it's wrong. Uh, to have a sidearm as a Christian. You know, we are to be loving. We are not to be uh, violent people. And, and so they say, well, you know, you shouldn't be involved with weapons. I think this is a matter of liberty of conscience. The scriptures here, clearly, you have to say, Christ is telling them to, to put on a sidearm in the beginning. Now, that's not a... a I'm not saying that that is a command that you're sinning if you don't possess a firearm. Okay, I want to be clear on that. (laughs) But but it is clearly permissible in this context here. And I think given the civic liberties that we have as a nation, it is it is permissible for Christians. It is not a contradiction to have sidearms to protect your household, to protect your family. Now, you don't have to. It's a, uh, you know, I, I, I believe I've heard a case by John Piper where why he says he doesn't. OK, so there's an example of a minister who does not, you know, has chosen not to. Uh, your pastor has chosen 
otherwise. I'm five foot five and it's hard to carry a policeman when you're five foot five, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's why I, 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 I do, uh, I, you know, I, I freely admit I have uh, self-defense protection. So uh, the, 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 the I think we have the liberty there to do so. Um, but I think we, we should also be careful to recognize that as a church, I don't think that we are as a church to be trying to advance the kingdom by way of revolution, by way of taking up of violence uh, and, and of the sword. Uh, we we are to take up the sword of the spirit. That is how the kingdom of Christ is advanced. Now, what is the sword of the spirit? You say, well, that that reference comes from Ephesians 6, where Paul tells the Ephesian church to put on the whole armor of God. The sword of the spirit, Paul tells us, is the word of God. This is the offensive weapon that we have as a church that we are to employ. And that is we are to read and preach the word as much as possible in the world. We're to try and send as many missionaries out, plant as many churches as we can, Pray and ordain as many qualified men as we can to be ministers of the gospel so that we can preach the word. This is why, you know, our philosophy here is is to that, you know, and I thank you that you pay me to preach the gospel, not only to you, but to you send me out. You let me off the leash and, and you send me out, you know, to the two nursing homes a week and to the college so that. I, I am doing what the primary task of the church is, is to preach the gospel and to preach the, not only the gospel, but the whole counsel of the Bible, to preach the whole Bible, um, because this is how people come to faith. Faith comes by hearing and that of the word of God. You know, how shall they hear except a preacher be sent? Paul says. Um, so that this is what the church is supposed to be doing. We're, we're to take as many opportunities as we can. You know, this is why we put our sermons on the Internet because, so that the, the preaching can go overseas internationally uh, to other people. You know, it, it, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. This is also why liberals don't care about, you know, taping sermons uh, because they, they don't really believe that this is really all that important. Um, but we believe otherwise. We we believe the Bible is, is God's Sword. It's the two edged sword that we're supposed to carry and we're to take it into battle and, and preach uh, the word of God. You know, sometimes um, the, the covenanters in Scotland during the killing times of the late 17th century, you remember the Stuart monarchy is restored in 1662. And, and it was a terrible time for Scottish Presbyterians because the English king um, was Charles II, James II, were trying to um, impose their will on the Scottish church. And the, the, a group called the Covenanters took up arms. And there's been controversy uh, about that. Was that a lawful thing for them to do? Should they have done that? And, and I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic um, because I do think... In many ways, it was an act of self-defense. Now, the state of England didn't see it that way. They saw it as a, as, as rebellion against uh, the divine right of the king. But um, 
you have to realize that many of our Scottish forebears who were Presbyterians were having to worship outside of their church building. Remember, they, they lost the ability to worship, you know, in their own places of worship. They had to meet secretly in the moors or what we call the swamps and the woods. And remember also that England did away with due process for the Covenanters at one point where the dragoons, the English dragoons, once they came upon our Scottish Presbyterian forefathers, they became uh, judge, jury and executioner all in one moment. And there was no now some of the early covenanters were arrested and tried, you know, with show trials. But later they, they even dropped that and just started with executions on the spot, even of children caught with a psalter, you know, executed on the spot. So uh, I think that that the, the covenanters, I look sympathetically on on some of our, our Scottish Presbyterian forefathers who did take up the literal sword, because I think it was a, um, a, a an act of self-defense uh, from from a tyranny that was uh, imposed upon them. But normally speaking, uh, that, that is not the, the sort of choice that we are to be taking up. Uh, we, we are to preach the word and we are to be about it uh, both publicly and from house to house. That was what Paul did. He preached in the synagogues, but he also did pastoral visitations, teaching and preaching the word uh, home to home, catechizing as he went. Now, notice that um, Jesus is saying dark days are coming, and that's why they have to make all these preparations. He said that the son of man himself was going to be numbered with transgressors. I take that to be that he is going to be you know, crucified between two malefactors as a common criminal himself, even though Jesus himself is sinless. He he is impeccable. Uh, that means, boys and girls, that's a good SAT word for you. Impeccable means uh, to be without fault, without sin. Jesus, being both God and man, lived a perfect life, a righteous life that you and I have not lived. <clears throat> and then notice here that the disciples say, Lord, look, here are two swords. I, I remember we had a member a long time ago. He had a big gun collection and he, he always, uh, you know, referred to verse uh, 36 there. You know, whoever doesn't have a sword, sell his coat and get one. And his pastor said to him, and he said, yeah, but two are enough. <laughs> so here they say, look, here are two swords. And he says it is enough. So I think here again, the idea that they, they are not to rely upon the physical sword for their preservation or for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And that, of course, needs to be the same today as well. Um, dark days may come for us. We don't know. Um, it's possible that we're going to go through some trials and tribulations in our country. I think it's difficult to square where our country is going in terms of its sexual revolution with being at peace civically with the church. Um, I think, you know, a, a, a Ten years ago, dozen years ago, um, you know, marriage was still between a man and a wife. Now, uh, the Supreme Court has said that it can include two people of the same sex. And I think there's going to be a growing uh, hostility uh, 
towards those who insist that a true definition of marriage is between man and woman, that a man and a man is not a true marriage, a woman and a woman. And, and I think that's going to become seen increasingly um, as um, something that is intolerable. And, and, and because it's you have to remember, oftentimes because it's legal, once it becomes legal, then later the, the sin who does not believe that it, it becomes in, in something of in it, uh, something intolerable. And, and I think there's going to be a growing clash as we as a as a church continue to uh, preach and, and teach that uh, the gift of, of sexual and marital relations is only for the context of marriage and not before it, not outside of it, uh, is going to be met with um, great opposition, I think, possibly. It's going to be more, the liberties, you know, you think about if you're a Christian and you run a bed and breakfast, or, you know, you, you think about um, various occupations. We've already seen the chief of the fire department in Atlanta, you know, lost his job because he had published uh, a, a, a booklet that he used for his the Sunday school uh, class that he taught uh, on just simply espoused the traditional marriage view and um, we, that he uh, came under fire from the mayor's office and lost his position uh, over, over those things. So I, it, I think we we may be headed for dark days. I don't want to be apocalyptic, but um, I don't want to be naive either. Um, now, God may bring revival. Things may change. Things can change. Um, we, we don't know. God is an intervening God. God is a God who does break into history uh, with great works. And and it's possible um, that we're, that may happen. But it may be that both may happen. Um, Jonathan Edwards was of the view that when God brings revival, he tends to bring times of testing right behind it. Uh, some believe that one of the reasons was that we had such great revival in the 1859 revival that uh, was in New York and later in the South was because what happened? Well, the Civil War followed immediately after. Think about all the millions of, of people affected by the Civil War and the hundreds of thousands that lost their lives in that war. How many of them were ushered into heaven uh, because God graciously brought revival before that time of trial and testing. So it might be a both and that dark days are coming and great days are coming. It could be that the church is tested in ways we have not been tested before, but it also might be a time of great blessing where we're seeing a lot more people converted to Christ uh, and brought in and their numbers are increasing, even though it's more difficult to meet or something like that. Well, let me move on. Um, Dark days for the church uh, there in uh, verses 35 to 38 and verse 39 to 46. Now we come to the next scene where Luke has Jesus praying for the preparation for his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And of course, ultimately, the judgment of God falling upon Jesus while he's hanging on that cross. Look at our text again, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. This was a place that he and his disciples would regularly go to kind of get away. 
And the disciples also followed him. This, this is how Judas knew where to take the army of um, officers to arrest Jesus, because this was a place where Christ would go. He would go to Gethsemane, the garden there. <coughs> when they when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray. Now, Luke gives us a little bit more of a cursory account than some of the other gospel writers. We know from some of the other gospel writers that the, the 11 of them plus Jesus go in. So the 12 of them total go into the garden. And then Jesus takes Peter, James and John and they go a little bit further into the garden than the rest of them. The three being his kind of closest companions out of his disciples. But then we are told that Jesus then went a stone's throw from the three. So you have all 12 of them. Then Jesus takes three of them of the 11. And then even from those three, he goes by himself. <coughs> I don't know how many feet you can throw a rock, but how many feet that is. That's about how far Jesus went deeper into the garden. And I remember Sinclair, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson one time teaching on this. And he's speaking here about the coming desolation of Christ. If you think about like a, a whirlpool uh, drain going down the drain, it goes around and around. And there's a sense that Christ is is beginning to swirl around and around deeper and deeper in his desolation. Um, that now he had only his 12. One of them's betraying him. He has his disciples. He has his three. But even then he's he's left alone. Um, he, he, he is only Christ himself can take this burden that is being laid upon his shoulders. And what is this burden, boys and girls? It's the burden of having to carry our sins and to wear those sins and to die for those sins. That's that's the burden that Jesus is is beginning to take on here in the garden. It's not just at the cross. I want you to feel that we're, we are beginning to descend into the desolation with Jesus here. Jesus is going where his disciples cannot go. Jesus is going to take the place. His disciples, Peter and James and John, cannot wear your sins. Because they're sinners. Only Christ, who is without sin, can wear our sins. So Christ finds himself alone. And even the three who should have been watching and praying with him at a distance fall asleep on him. So he's betrayed by one. And his friends are failing him. <clears throat> Here again, Luke's account is a little bit more abridged. We know that actually Jesus prays, Father, you know, if this cup can pass, let it pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes back and they're asleep and he wakes them up and says, hey, watch and pray. And then he goes back and he prays, Lord, if this cup can pass. And then he gets up and he comes to the disciples again. He finds them asleep again. And he says, hey, watch and pray. And then he goes again and he prays a third time. So three times the Lord is coming before the father uh, to work out the, the father's will in his life, to bring himself to that point in his humanity where he is submitting himself, subjecting himself to the will of his father. Now, remember, as the eternal son of God, Christ is not reluctant to go to the cross. I want you to understand this. 
that it was always the plan of God, the son with God, the father, that the son should die for our sins. But what we're dealing with in his perfect humanity is is Jesus as a man having to suffer the equivalent of eternal hell for you. And if a person dies without Christ and is sentenced to eternal judgment, that judgment is carried on forever in the future. Christ, in order to redeem us from that judgment, has to take the equivalent of eternal hell for us. While on that cross. And I think it is understandable, more than understandable. That even in his perfect humanity, Christ would tremble at, at this thought of, of having to suffer the equivalent of eternal punishment, not just for one person's sins, but for the sins of all of God's elect. All those who ultimately are going to be redeemed by his atoning death, he must account for all of their individual sins. And he must own them as though he committed them. And he must substitute himself in their place on that cross. And so it is no wonder that we find our Savior in his human nature here in agony. Notice in verse 44, and being in agony, he, Jesus, was praying very fervently, his sweat pouring out of him. This this is this is not some placid sweet and uh, in a prayer that you see in these paintings where, you know, they have Jesus kind of with his two hands together, looking serenely into heaven, you know, in the garden. I mean, that that is as far from the biblical picture as you can get. This is a man who, who is staring hell in the face. And knows that as a man, he's about to go there while on the cross. I don't believe that Christ, we can talk about what it meant he descended into hell another time. But, but I think theologically speaking, the, the judgment of hell was placed on Christ while on the cross in those latter three hours. He's on the cross for six hours. And I think it's those latter three. That's when, when the sky becomes dark as night and the sun is blotted out. Is when God the Father, in judgment, in wrath, in justice, pours out his judgment on Christ. It's interesting, you know, we have no account of anybody talking anymore. Once that judgment comes, all the mocking, that took place in the first three hours. Well, you know, all the jeering, hey, why don't you come off that cross and we'll believe you. Once the judgment of God, once the hell descends upon Christ's head on that cross. Even the mockers and the jeers are silent. Because they know something awful, terrible. Transcendently uh, terrible is, is descending around them. And every mouth is closed at that point. The only person who speaks for the next three hours is Jesus. So Christ is preparing himself through prayer for the cross that he is about to endure. And, and 
It is having a physiological effect on him. Those of you who have had panic attacks, maybe you can relate. When you can't stop your heart, your heart feels like you're sprinting. Your heart feels like you're, you're, you're running a hundred meter dash for an hour. And you can't humanly control the physiological responses. That's what's going on here. Christ uh, is out in the night and yet the sweat is just pouring out of his body. Because he is he is trembling before the father, knowing that the father is going to unsheath that sword against him. And the and the sweat is pouring out thickly. And I think it is like drops of blood. Some commentators want to say that blood was intermixed with the sweat. I'm not sure about that. I think it's trying to show that. How, how profuse it was, thick it was. He rises from prayer and he comes to his disciples and, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. They, they are asleep. The weight of human sin and divine punishment weighing on their friend, on their savior. Even an angel, we are told here, has to come and bring him comfort. In verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. We see in the midst of this the kindness of the Father, don't we? In the midst of Christ's desolation, he, seeing that Christ is getting no earthly comfort, the Father sends heavenly comfort to Jesus. Well, then we need to move on. Then it begins. Verse 47 to verse 53, the arrest and the, the attack. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve was preceding them and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? So here he he signals to the soldiers of the Sanhedrin, which one it was that they were to arrest him. And he kisses him probably on both sides of the cheek, as common in the Near East. And the disciples begin to realize what's happening. They see everybody armed with torches and swords and clubs. And we're not told in Luke's account, but in another account of the Gospels, we're told that that Peter does take one of those two swords and takes a swing at the head of Malchus, who was the slave of the high priest. Thought it was actually a pretty good shot. He actually got got the ear and came off. And Jesus tells Peter to stop. And I, I remember a long time ago when I was a college student, um, a Baptist minister came to the university meeting one night to preach. And and uh, I always thought it was interesting. He he speculated that when Jesus picked up the ear of Malchus and put it back on his head and healed, miraculously healed the slave's ear, he, he said, I wonder if that slave could hear with ears to hear. Did he realize what was going on and who Jesus really was? 
The Bible says that in order to have ears to hear, it has to be a work of the spirit. The flesh does not understand the gospel. The flesh doesn't understand who Jesus really is. Without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, people think Jesus is merely a good teacher. He's an example for us. He's the personification of love, etc. What they fail to realize, though, is that Christ is so much more than that. Christ is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. That's the chief part of Christ that we need to always understand. Christ did not come into this world merely to teach us. Christ did not come into this world merely to be an example for us. Christ came into the world to die. To be a substitute like the lambs of the old covenant that were sacrificed for human sin, laid upon the altar. Christ here says to Peter, stop. Because it's necessary that he as the Lamb of God go to the cross. It's necessary for the salvation of us that he go and die. And so Jesus Christ stops his disciples from seeking to resist and they flee, we're told. They run. And Jesus says, I was daily with you, speaking now to Judas and the officers, I was daily with you in the temple. Did you not you did not lay hands on me? He says, But what? But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. What is what is Jesus saying there? How are we to understand this hour and the power of darkness? This is all under the sovereign control of God. God is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. But now what we find is that God has permitted Satan to carry out his evil deeds against the Son. That whereas formerly Satan was stayed by the hand of God from fully getting at Jesus, now the Father withdraws his hand and, and, and much like God did with Job. Remember, God told Satan, you know, you can take Job, but only so far. You may not take his life. You know, you can take away his children. You can take away his animals. You can take away his his house, his prosperity, his health. But you cannot take his life. And here, God is now granting Satan permission To go even beyond what was allowed of Job. Now you may take his life. The power of darkness now is upon them. And Christ, the sinless, the innocent one, the son of God, the perfect man, is being handed over to evil men, controlled now by an evil spirit, so that he might go... And die on that cross. But that is what Paul says. The very wisdom of God. In that by handing him over to. The worst of all angelic beings. God would accomplish his salvation. That the that even as. Satan was the one who brought our first parents, Adam and Eve, into ruin. 
God would see to it in his divine economy that Satan in some way would play a part in bringing about the salvation of men. God would cause Satan to bring about the death of Jesus, the son of God, the second Adam, so that we could be redeemed from what was lost by the first Adam. Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Oh, the depth, the breadth, the height, the knowledge and wisdom of God. Amen.